values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with me today. The homicide clearance rates are the lowest in 40 years. That is a scary proposition. Let me tell you what the byproduct is, and I'm going to start with a question I ask every time I talk about this topic. What kind of city do you want to live in? I don't care what city that is. What kind of place do you want to live in? We have chosen a law and order society, which, which means we live by a set of laws. We have law enforcement officers that make arrests. When bad things happen, we call the police. We call 911. We let them handle it as much as they can. Um, We protect ourselves in an extreme emergency. But for the most part, when there's an issue, you let the police handle it. That's the society we live in. But we're seeing more and more that the police departments are understaffed. They are under-equipped. They are under-trained. And more and more crimes go unsolved, which means we know that criminals don't normally stop at one crime. So what's the byproduct of this? Let This goes back to 2021 in a Wall Street Journal story. Here's the headline. Women are nearly half of new gun buyers, according to a study. The preliminary results of the 2021 National Firearms Survey designed by Deborah Azrael of the Harvard T.H. Chan School in Public Health um, and uh, Matthew Miller from Northeastern University show an estimated three and a half million women became new gun owners from January 2019 to April of 2021. About four million men became new gun owners over that period. For decades, other surveys have found that around 10 to 20 percent of American gun owners were women. Now that jumped to about almost 50 percent. I think it's a great thing. It also talks about racial backgrounds and diversity and that it is black women that are making up a huge number of gun buyers now. Um, you know, there's that the old joke and they talk about the laws that prevented black people from getting guns. And the gun control advocates say if you really want to have gun control, let more black people buy them and white people. It's all a joke. Well, it's not a joke. I like to see anybody have the ability to protect themselves. Now, you, you shouldn't have to. Let's be honest. You shouldn't have to. But Chicago has got such a big problem, and look at their gun laws. This is where we don't have reasonable conversations. Gun control advocates are dug in. They are dug in. So anytime they can come up with data that says, you know, you're safer in L.A. than you are someplace else because per capita this. and When you talk about the level of crimes that are being committed, when you're talking about – Cities that have very restrictive gun laws, and yet you see very high murder rates, how do you answer for that? If we all want the same thing, and we do, safe streets, then we have to look at these things and say, how, what is best? what is the best way to have safe streets? Yesterday, we talked about guns because the city of Phoenix, by law, has guns that have been forfeited for one reason or another. The Phoenix Police Department have taken forfeited firearms, and they are required to sell them to people that are legal gun owners or qualified to be legal gun owners. And there's members of the city council that think it's outrageous that we're going to put more guns on the street. You're not putting them on the street. You took them off the street, and you're now putting them in the hands of legal gun owners. But look at the statistics. This is where you are seeing people react. We stand our ground politically, and we should. We always should. Um, But then when reality sets in, when you weren't right, 
then people make different decisions. When you see cities like Seattle and Minneapolis, the defund the police movement and how what an abysmal failure it was. They now are entire, trying to entice police officers to come back. Um, it, it didn't work. The safer streets didn't happen. The kumbaya didn't happen. Predators were still preying and there were less there were less sheepdogs out there. And the sheep were getting slaughtered. And now you're looking at this rate of increase of, of people that are new gun owners because they don't feel as if they have an option. So what do we do when the clearance rate for homicides are at a 40-year low because the crime rates have gone up so high? In the Clinton administration, we got the three-strike rule. And the, the idea of the th- three-strike rule was if you've shown yourself to commit three felonies, you've shown yourself in this world that you can't comply with American laws, we're going to lock you up for a very long period of time. The pendulum swung. And so we saw people being locked up for felonies, and sometimes they weren't dangerous felonies. Sometimes it was a simple drug charge, and these people were sentenced because of their third strike to 20 years plus in prison. So the pendulum swung back. We saw that under the Trump administration, partly in the Obama administration, but that we saw people being released and saying this is not what was intended. We are seeing, first of all, a big disparity because there are a lot of African-Americans that are being locked up in prisons for 20 and 30 years that weren't dangerous people and simple drugs. Drug charges should not be the the litmus test for locking somebody away for such a long time, and the pendulum began to swing the other way. You couple that with the defund the police movement, and now all of a sudden you've got less police officers, and you've got prosecutors that are unwilling to, to prosecute certain crimes. When that happens, what you get is what we have now. The pendulum will swing in the other direction. We are going to see law and order take over again. And it just is a matter of time of when and how that happens. In the meantime, we have a personal responsibility, not just a right. We have a responsibility to protect the people we love, to protect ourselves, and to protect innocent people. I take that as a responsibility. And when you look at the numbers, when you look at what's happening, in the end, Every one of us is saying the same thing, or most of us are saying the same thing, which is, I just want a safe place for me and for the people I love. I want good people to feel safe on the streets, and I want bad people to be afraid of what's going to happen when they're caught. Because if they get caught, it isn't a 50-50 chance that that murder they committed is going to be solved. It's 80%. It's 90%. If you commit a violent crime, if you commit a crime against another human being, if you steal, if you rob, if you burglarize, if you carjack, we're going to lock you up. We are going to separate you from the rest of us. And we're going to separate you from the rest of us for a long time. Redemption is possible, but you're going to pay a heavy price. And I think sending that message is coming because everybody – this isn't a skin color thing. It isn't a generational thing. It isn't a gender thing. It's a human instinct. We want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's only possible when people are willing to stand in the gap and make sure that those that would take your life, take your liberty, or stop your pursuit of happiness are locked up and separated from the rest of us. If not, you've got the Wild West. Let's go back to the, uh, the, you know, one of my favorite Westerns is Lonesome Dove. Let's go back to the days where the Texas Rangers ride out there and they find some guys. They say you're a horse thief and you hang them and you hang a sign on them that says this person was a horse thief and you are justice in the streets. Is that what we're looking for? And I don't think the answer is yes. Let's just hope that we get the message.
gun ownership going way up among groups of people that weren't classically a high number of gun owners. Why? Because they see what's happening outside in their neighborhoods. They've got children. Just common sense. Coming up in a moment, we get you caught up on the biggest news stories of the day. It's a segment we call Did You Hear This? So please stick around for it. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Fastest moving segment of the show, catching you up on the headlines. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. Immigration is the topic on the Hill today. The first full House Homeland Security Committee hearing is taking place. Today's hearing, titled, quote, Every State is a Border State, so trying to broaden out this issue. And it is one of many you can expect more border hearings to come in a number of different committees. Has every state become a border state? Yeah, I think so. And I think because of the uh, the infiltration of fentanyl and what it's doing across the country and killing young people across the country, it certainly has. We've seen how it's affected New York City now with migrants being brought into that city. We've heard other major cities in the Northeast and the Midwest complaining about what's happening when it's tied to legal illegal immigration. We've had other cities that used to or states that were border or that were considered to be sanctuary states that have gotten rid of that designation or counties because. I think one in Pennsylvania just did it because of what's happening with this issue. It isn't that we despise or dislike any human being. We just want people to do things the right way. And I will tell you what's interesting is one of the leaders on this issue right now is the former governor of Arkansas. Again, not what you would consider a border state. Asa Hutchinson, one of the most educated and active on this issue. And he's really making some noise because he's not just complaining. He's talking about solutions. And it really is pretty amazing. Keep your eye on him. There is new data on Arizona's teacher shortage. According to a survey by the School Personnel Administrators Association, 25% of teaching positions were left vacant as of January, and 44% of instructors that were hired didn't meet the state standards for teaching. Are you concerned that hired instructors did not meet teaching standards? Yeah, I am. I'm concerned about all of this. I think that, you know, the plan that is being pushed in the state legislature by Representative Gress is is, uh, giving teachers a $10,000 direct directly into their pockets, a $10,000 raise, getting rid of the red tape and the bureaucracy, but going right to the teachers is a shot in the arm that the teachers deserve and probably need and would go a long way into recruiting people, not only into the profession, but people wanting to make sure they're fully qualified to be in the profession. I think there are some good plans that are out there. If you want good people in any industry, and I'm a capitalist, you got to pay them. You got to pay to keep them and you got to pay to get them. And I think it's time we did it. You are listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at this time to catch you up on the big headlines. Crime survivors and their families gathered at Arizona's Capitol yesterday asking lawmakers to fund trauma recovery centers. Aswad Thomas, the National Director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, explains why he thinks this is important. Through the legislation HB 2612, it will provide the necessary funding to pilot a trauma recovery center pilot program so survivors can get support and help that they need. 
actually heal, so that communities can build the infrastructure that they need for victim services. Does Arizona need something like this? Yeah, you know, it's such an interesting concept, and I would say, yeah, when you um, you think of what happens, and it's disheartening to a lot of people that watch the justice system, that when somebody commits a crime and they're convicted of a crime, there are a lot of pro- uh, programs available to them that help them get back on the streets and not go back and commit crimes again, and there is a lot of tools at their disposal. They actually become kind of the focus of the whole thing. What gets left behind many times are the trauma to the victims. If your home's been burglarized, if you've been brutalized, the sexual assault, things that are traumatic to people, if we could do something for the victims as well, I don't know why we wouldn't because there is a level of trauma there that's been largely ignored. New information has been released regarding Dominion's defamation lawsuit against Fox News and what Fox personnel knew versus what they said on the air. Recent court filings show top Fox hosts privately trashed the Trump legal team for lying. As Tucker Carlson texted Laura Ingram, Sidney Powell is lying. It's insane. And as Sean Hannity said, quote, I did not believe it for one second. Do you think Dominion has a strong defamation case against Fox News? I, I you know, again, I don't know the evidence of defamation. I don't know what that is, what their evidence is. But if they've been defamed, if Fox News hosts said they believe that it was a lie and it's proven that it was a lie and they knew it and broadcast it anyway. Yeah, I'll tell you what's disheartening about this. Um, these are my people. Um, you know, Sean Hannity is somebody that was very helpful to me in my career. Um, I think the world of Sean. I really do. But I I had to speak out, and I'm not calling myself better than anyone. I had to speak out on the issue because I didn't believe the election was stolen. I voted for Donald Trump twice. I thought he was twice the better option um, with both candidates. Uh, I will go to my grave believing that. I don't care who says anything about it. But when it comes to the stolen election part of things, I thought we needed to move on much quicker. And I think that now looking back, those Fox News anchors could have done a job, a better job of moving us forward instead of us completely looking in the past. And I think there's going to be a lot of soul searching and a lot of check writing at Fox News. All right. That is Did You Hear This? And by the way, I want to be clear. I know this doesn't matter necessarily, but everybody's doing this in the news business, by the way. This happens whether it's the Hunter Biden cover up and the complicity by people in the media. But to see it happen like this, you got to acknowledge it. I've been bashing um, about the origins of covid that's coming out now. I've been bashing people about the Hunter Biden cover up. I've been going after people that just dismissed anybody that said, you know, that there were alternative uh, forms of treatment for covid nineteen. COVID-19 and they were called names. If I'm going to do that, I've got to be honest on the other side as well. And I'll be, I'll tell you the truth. It makes me sick to my stomach. I don't like it at all. Um, because again, you know, those are people that I, uh, that I wanted to emulate. Those are people that I admire. Those are people that I respect. When I look at the people that either work at Fox News or have worked at Fox News that have been, you know, had played a role in my career, so to speak, in helping me in one way or the other, Sean Hannity and, and, uh, um, Glenn Beck, who is no longer there and not part of this this scandal, but these are people um, that have been instrumental. And, and so, you know, I don't like seeing any of this on, from anybody doing it. And if I'm going to call it out in one place, we got to call it out in the other. It's just not as fun when you're calling out people that you general, genu- genuinely respect. Uh, coming up in a moment, we go back to the border visit. Governor Hobbs goes to the border. What did she learn? What should she have learned? And what will it cause her to do? We'll talk about that next.
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. The uh, mayor of Yuma talking about the visit by the governor and also the importance of the border strike force. I want you to hear just a little bit of what Mayor Nichols had to say about the importance of the strike force force was critical in certain areas to make sure we had additional resources here locally along the border for the particular issues that we deal with. The governor has stated that the, the part of her budget is to eliminate the border strike force because she doesn't believe that it has fulfilled its goals, which made me kind of laugh because I'm going to make some people angry by saying this. So let's get rid of the Department of Education. Um, I would say to you that Arizona schools have failed to meet their goals for a much longer amount of time. Um, and, and so if that's our litmus test, if our litmus test, and this is now based on her opinion, it's not my opinion, but her opinion. And, and at a time when we need all hands on deck, a relook. Absolutely. I think when a new governor comes in, that new governor should put their footprint or their fingerprints on everything that happens in the state. Um, But this sounds a little different to me. Uh, The removal of the border strike force. We understand the dire straits that our neighbors to the south. What I mean by that is the border towns, the border counties in Arizona that they are in. They are being overwhelmed with need. Uh, hospitals spending $26 million in care that they'll never recover, saying that it could break the back of the hospital. You've also got food banks and other places that are being overwhelmed, crimes that are being committed. You've got police agencies. It, when you talk to ranchers, and this is part of what I think is interesting, you know that that of the five C's here in Arizona, cattle is one of them. It's part of our rich history in Arizona is having people, the ranchers in Arizona are a big part of who we are as a state. Um, the old song that says my heroes have always been cowboys. That's that is absolutely the truth. My heroes have always been cowboys. And um, there I've been around. I've had the pleasure of being around some real cowboys, ranch raised, ranch working cowboys and cowgirls, the families and generations of them. When you talk to them and what a difficult life it is, and it is a difficult life. But when you add to it what's happening on the border, when you have ranchers that live along the border and they start telling you that the stories that their grandchildren that ride the land with them now know the difference between the smell of a dead dead cow or bull and a dead human being. They know the difference because they've smelled the two more often than they should. When they ride their land, not only with first aid kits, but with rifles because it's dangerous they don't know there's been cases here where somewhere a rancher was killed because they found what they thought was somebody who was dead and they went to render aid to this person and it was an ambush and they were shot and killed um ranchers you would think if you live on a ranch if you think about with that life and how much people love it and i'm one of them that thinks this it would be heaven to have a place with some land and some you know some wide open space and some animals sleep with your doors and windows open never having to lock your door and living a life of peace and tranquility well they're putting bars on their windows down on the border, um, and they are seeing crime like crazy because, again, the cartels don't have an ounce of concern for anyone's life. None. It is all about the money. It is all about the power, and they will kill anyone that gets in their way, including a rancher or a rancher's family. 
So it would seem to me it would be counterproductive as long as there are big issues down there. If you're going to revamp something on the border, if you're going to say this needs to work differently, we're looking at this and we're looking at that and it doesn't seem to be adding up. But to say you're scrapping the program because it didn't meet its intended goals, that sounds like political speak for getting rid of something that you're not a big fan of. And I just think it's political suicide in Arizona because it's not a partisan issue. I guarantee you that there are ranchers that are Democrats. There are law enforcement officers that are Democrats. There are people on the border that are working in these hospitals and food banks and other places that are Democrats that are looking at this and saying it's untenable. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have the same solutions to the problem. But acting as if getting rid of the border strike force is going to be helpful It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, The mayor is talking about the need for more resources at the border. That just means we were missing all that before. If we have state resources, law enforcement that can come and help reinforce the border interdictions along the interstate, along the public roads, that would be a game changer. So there are a couple of things that I think are in the plans or in the works or are happening that I think send the wrong message. One of them is this. When the governor says that, and I wish I could have this conversation, I hope to have a conversation with her because, again, I'm not, this is not to cast insults. This is for me to say this is where I disagree. And I'm convincible. Convince me that I'm wrong in what I'm saying. The governor said we are going to continue to fly and bus migrants out of Arizona to other places, but it's more it's more humane because we are going to find out where they want to go and we're going to fly them there at our expense. Well, we're doing that anyway, so it's not going to cost us any more money. But what message does it send? Is that incentivizing people to come through Arizona border crossings? Why go to Texas? Why go to New Mexico or California? If the governor of Arizona said, once you're here, once you have cleared through security, once you have had your hearing, we are going to say to you, where do you want to go? And you say, I have relatives in St. Louis. I have relatives in Des Moines. I have a family member or a sponsor family in Wyoming. We're going to fly you there. You don't have to worry about a a nonprofit organization. You don't have to worry about having the money yourself for a plane ticket. We're going to fly you there. That's not an incentive to cross into Arizona and not the other places. I do think it's an incentive. And secondly, where I disagree, now you are saying to the criminal element, and that is exactly what the cartels are, and they cartels have great intelligence gathering capabilities. They just do. When the United States border and the federal border security that is supposed to be doing it, whether it's CBP or ICE, begins to take assets and move them to high traffic areas, which we've seen them do in southern Texas. When they go into Del Rio or they go into McAllen, Texas, what do the cartels do? The cartels have the intel. They've now saturated those areas in Texas. We're going to bring our caravans of people into Arizona. That's when you saw the huge uptick in Yuma. Wait a minute. In Arizona, they're putting up a border wall made of shipping containers, it has slowed down. It didn't solve the problem. They rerouted to somewhere else, but they're going to go somewhere else. Well, wait until the word gets out with the cartels that the border strike force has been disbanded. Where do you think the drug trafficking is going to come? Where do you think that it is going to be where people now are trafficking their drugs because they have a better chance of getting through? Now, we know that much of the fentanyl 
that is brought into this country is not muled in across these illegal crossings, but many times they're being brought in across the ports of entry. But there are many times that interdiction is happening once they clear that, once they've gotten past federal authorities, state officials are catching them on the interstate. The, the drug interdiction teams with the state police in conjunction with local and state law enforcement, sheriff's departments and local police. A lot of those busts are being made there. We've heard about major busts being made in cases that take years to develop here up in the valley. But if you're going to take resources away, what you're saying to these organizations is we've just made it a little bit easier for you in this avenue. So now bring the people here because we're going to fly them or bus them wherever they want to go. And now it's a safer place to traffic your drugs. If you get past the port of entry, they don't have the border strike force anymore. So local law enforcement has a very slim chance of ever catching you guys. Those are the two areas of disagreement I have with this plan. I don't know everything. I would love to hear the the mayor ask those questions. I'm sorry, the governor asked those questions and have her answer of why she doesn't think what I just said is true. And if she's got a reasonable answer, I will say that sounds reasonable. But those are the first two thoughts that came to my mind. Um, coming up before we close it out, uh, there is a – and the word hero is thrown around a lot. A, an American hero and an Arizona – what I think is a Arizona um, – I want to say – that he is a legend in Arizona. I'm just going to go with that. A man that lived 101 years, served his country, and is a part of our history, especially our veteran and military history. He passed away recently. I want to tell you who he is and a little about why I say he's a legend. That's coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Uh, a sad, sad news came out this week. Jack Holder, who is a Pearl Harbor survivor. Mr. Holder is someone that is a fixture at veterans events around Arizona and around the country. He is a Pearl Harbor survivor, died at 101 years old recently. Um, we throw the word around he- like hero. We say it a lot. But Mr. Holder truly was a hero, not just for his service in World War II, not just because of his illustrious career. Uh, beginning that people knew about at Pearl Harbor. Um, this is a quote from Mr. Holder. Hunkered down behind a fortress of sandbags on December 7, 1941, I wondered if this is the day I would die. That morning I watched as Japanese dive bombers devastated Pearl Harbor. I knew we would no longer sit on the sidelines of the war ravaging Europe. He flew over 100 missions which turned the tide of the war in favor of the United States and the Pacific Theater. That was Pearl Harbor National Memorial commemorative Facebook post said about Mr. Holder. Holder was awarded two Distinguished Flying Cross medals, six Air Medals, a Presidential Citation, six Commendation Medals throughout his Navy career before being honorably discharged in 1948, according to the Pearl Harbor National Memorial. Um, Not only did Mr. Holder do that, he went on to be a pilot, a commercial pilot. He went on also to be an educator. At first, Mr. Holder said he didn't think anyone would be interested in hearing the stories of what happened. And then he realized it was a part of American history, and he would go to events and talk about the events of Pearl Harbor. Um, I'm going to read from the story. Holder became a regular at Pearl Harbor commemorations, museums, and schools, telling a Republic reporter in 2016 he wanted everyone to hear the stories of what happened at Pearl Harbor and the war that altered history forever. 
the way this story, and this is a, a very a, a very nice piece that was written uh, at the Arizona Republic. Holder will be laid to rest at the Arlington National Cemetery. A memorial service will take place in Phoenix in early April, although the exact date has not been announced. Um, there are a lot of people that I've had the pleasure and honor of meeting, and Mr. Holder was one of them. He was a fixture at a lot of events. One in particular, every year we did something called the um, Veterans Medical Leadership Council, VMC, VMLC Luncheon every year. And I've been blessed to be an MC at that luncheon for years now, and he was always there, always willing to take pictures. People, when they found out who he was, he was recognized every year. We call that World War II generation our greatest generation for a reason, but Mr. Holder played such a big role in many of those battles that turned the tide of World War II. He was there and the attack of Pearl Harbor. He was a living piece of American history. Not just military history, but American history. And he he wore that badge when he realized the significance. He wore that badge as a piece of his life. He was then a living history. And he made sure he made himself available. On his 100th birthday, he went out in Mesa and uh, went out on a flight, and it was pretty amazing to see him take that flight. Um, and it is uh, – I think it's something for all of us. If you want to talk about real history, we want to make sure history doesn't repeat itself. Being dragged into that war as we were and the timing of things and what do we do, and we're learning those lessons now with the questions about Ukraine. How involved do we get because we know we didn't get involved in World War II, although Russia was under – I'm sorry, uh, the um, – Europe was under attack. Should we have gotten involved earlier? Could we have stopped death and mayhem and the the footprint of Hitler if we had gotten involved earlier? But all of that aside, Jack Holder was a gracious, kind man that many of you probably never heard of. And whenever you have an opportunity to hear about someone – whose life was kind of put upon them. I'm sure he didn't set out his life when he joined the Navy to be at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked, to be a part of the Battle of Midway and some of the other most significant battles in in that war. But he was. He flew missions and he won awards and commendations and recognitions and medals. But in the end, he was just a kind man that wanted people to understand the story and the significance of our military. And there were a lot of veteran events that I would go to over the years and he was there at most of them, kind and generous with his time. Um, and I, I'm, it's funny because I did not know him that well, although I knew him. Uh, I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss seeing him at those events. I'm going to miss the looks on people's faces when someone introduces him for the first time and says, this is Jack Holder. He is a Pearl Harbor survivor. And the look on people's faces when they hear that recognition, um, it is a sad day. So I would say to anyone out there, no matter where you served, how you served, what level you served, tell the stories. Make sure that the history lives on so that young people understand what real courage, real sacrifice is all about. It's a, it's a way for us to carry on the legacy and the memory of these great people, and he certainly was one of them. If you're a social media user, you can find me at BroomheadKTAR on Twitter. That's my personal handle. If you see something you like or dislike, I said it, but that's me. Uh, at Broomhead Show updates you on what happens on the show each day. And if you're an Instagram user, you can follow me at Mike Broomhead. All one word. Would love for you to follow us there. We'll be back tomorrow morning, beginning at just after 8 o'clock. Have a great day, everyone. God bless. Thank you.